if I could put just kind of an end cap on this Nehemiah series, all right, I want to I want to share a particular story with you. But if I could put an end cap uh, before we we get into the some of the meat of what God's just been sharing with me today, um, uh, it's it's this: uh, the end of the story is Nehemiah builds the wall. All right. Um, Nehemiah uh, and and the people of Israel get the the city walls of Jerusalem built, and it is a stinking humongous party. They party like it's 1999. Um, all over again, Will Smith comes and and does his thing. Um, that's a song. If you guys didn't get that, but uh, um, it's it's good. Nehemiah and and the people of Israel rebuild the the city walls of Jerusalem, and, and the symbol behind that, all right, is is God is establishing his kingdom. Okay, that's the spiritual, everything that happens down here in the flesh, in reality, there's a spiritual principle that's connected to it, and that's the principle is that God is restoring his kingdom. That's what this whole thing is about. God is restoring his community back with us, and so this was a a very important symbol that, hey, I'm coming. Hey, I'm establishing community. Hey, I'm restoring what I said I was going to restore. My people, my city, that's what's going to be in eternity to come, and we are his people. We're a part of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, we win. So the story ends with that, and I, and I love that. Um, so, so let's kind of uh, hang on to that as we, as we read through this, because there's one part in Nehemiah chapter 5 that I want to share that has to do with, with right before the, the city walls were being finished. Okay, so I didn't feel like I, I wanted to just end it with kind of a, a cliffhanger. I wanted to, to kind of give you the end of the story. Um, but before we read in Nehemiah chapter 5, this is a, a passage that I found, and um, I want to, to kind of use this as the backdrop for today. All right, so keep this passage in your mind as, as I share uh, today. It says this, it's found in Leviticus. So I know you guys read Leviticus like every other day, maybe every day. Um, right? Leviticus, fam, fam, just kidding. Um, it's probably like the, the least favorite book, maybe besides numbers, you know, it's just numbers, right? Um, just kidding, man. It's all God's, God's word, right? Praise Jesus. Um, Leviticus 25, it says this, uh, oh, wait, let me, let me preface that. Uh, this is God's word given to Moses hundreds of years before Nehemiah happens. Okay. So hundreds of years before Nehemiah's story, before the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, all of that kind of stuff, this was hundreds of years before. So God tells Moses, who is the leader of the people of Israel at this time, this. He says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, which in that culture, basically, if you were a stranger, just Kind of by law, you had to take people in and treat them like family, which for some of us is that bad because we don't like our family. Uh, it says, and, and this person, this uh, poor brother shall live with you. Take no interest, don't take any money from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest. Once again, don't earn money off of him, nor give him food for your profit. Don't get money from him. Once again, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. So God's saying, hey, I brought you, people of Israel, out of slavery, so don't put your fellow brothers back into slavery. Don't charge them. Don't don't put them under you. Okay? 
Um, he says uh, that I, I did that to be your God. In verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, like he gets into debt and so he, he has nothing else to give but himself, you shall not make him serve as a slave. You should not enslave him. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner or as a, a traveler. Like I said, that they had high respect for travelers. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, which meant every seven years they let somebody go. They, they, all the debts were cleared every seven years. Okay, so um, that was written. God told Moses to give that to the people of Israel hundreds of years before the story of Nehemiah. All right? Got that? Yes. Tracking? Good. So, fast forward a few hundred years. Nehemiah is rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. The people of Israel are stinking excited, and they're jumping in, and they're swinging hammers, and they're helping build, and everything is going to plan, right? God's kingdom is being built. It is an exciting time. And then we find Nehemiah chapter 5. And it says this, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Outcry means they're desperate, like, like they're near death. This is a, a desperate cry for help. This is uh, an intentional, like almost kind of like a scream because they're in, anticipating death soon. It communicates sadness and despair, and it says the people and their wives, which means it's a big deal if uh, the author felt that they needed to mention the wives in this story, because most of the time they didn't include the wives' opinions, um, just the, the way the culture was back then. And it says the wives, the people, the whole family, all of these people were ticked off at their Jewish brothers. So, Everything's going well. Nehemiah's growing. Uh, the city wall is being built. Things are going okay. And then all of a sudden, this schism happens. Like, like if this side of the room over here was a, a portion of the Jews, and this section was a portion of the Jews, and boom, there's a split right down the middle. The haves and the have-nots. The ones who had something to give, and the other ones who didn't. Let's read about it. It says this in verse 2, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many, which means we have a big family. So let us get grain that we might eat and keep alive. So they're saying, Hey, Nehemiah, we're about to die. That's what that we may eat and keep alive means. Keep alive means you need to be restored back to life. We are dying because we're hungry. All right? We're dying because we're hungry. And now understand that this is not like the kind of American form of hungry where like, you know, if we, if we miss lunch and we're like, oh, man, my, I didn't eat lunch. You know what I'm saying? I got to eat a big dinner because I didn't eat lunch. Um, no. This is like the... The uh, you know the children in Africa with the big malnourished be- bellies and they're teeny and like that's what this is talking about. They're dying, literal, like steps away from death. Yet they're building the kingdom. They're wanting to build the kingdom of God. They're wanting to help raise up the walls of Jerusalem, but it says they can't do it because 
they're about to die from hunger. This section of people has become slaves to an immediate need. Their immediate need was food. They become entrapped by this need of food. I want to help. I want to serve God. I want to build the wall, Nehemiah, but I can't because I don't have a way to get food. Now, in our context, here's the deal. Until people's immediate needs are met, they're not capable of truly embracing the gospel. Like, if we're trying to minister to people, like in in what we do in downtown High Point and and what we do in some of the other places around the neighborhoods and communities here, if, if they are hungry or if they don't have shelter or if they don't have clothing, if they don't have their basic needs met, then they're not able to take part in the building of the community. Because that immediate need (laughs) is the most important thing on their mind. Let me give you an illustration. If you went for two and a half days, maybe three, with no food and no water. Food, you can go a little bit longer. Water, you're going to start dying about day three. Okay? If you went with no food and no water for three days, and somebody brought a huge gallon of water and set it in front of you, what's your thoughts? I I need the water, (laughs) right? What do I need to do to get the water, right? So put this in our context. There are people in our community who have immediate needs. Sometimes it's physical, like food, shelter, clothing, fill in the blank, those kind of things. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's spiritual. Emotionally, we've got, we've got people dealing with, with post-war PTSD type stuff, all kinds of trauma in their life. They've been abused. They've been beaten. They've been uh, jumped around from foster care to foster care, orphanage to orphanage, whatever. And we're trying to bring them the good news. <laughs> but yet we're, we, we're incapable of giving them water. Here's the thing. When you minister to somebody who has a serious, immediate need, if you don't meet that immediate need first, then two things, one of two things are going to happen. Either they're going to say, forget you, I'm out. I got to go find somebody who can give me water. Or, even worse, they're going to accept whatever gospel you want to bring them just so they get the water. Remember, the picture, if you haven't eaten or drank for three days, you put that water down in front of you. If that person says, hey, you can have all the water you can drink, but I need you to stand on your head for 10 minutes, you going to do it? You're darn right you're going to do it. I'll do it. I need the water. So when someone says, here's the Bible, I need you to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then we'll give you something to eat, or then we'll, we'll help you get some shelter, or then whatever, they'll say, sure, that's cool, let's do it. Jesus love you, you're my savior, bring it, give me the house. 
right? If there's an immediate physical, emotional, spiritual need as a faith community, we have a moral obligation to meet it. Now, however you want to interpret um, uh, the community that, that you find in Scripture, some people say it's, it's our church, like we've got to take care of our people, which that is true, we need to do that. By the way, this week, we've had two instances of homelessness this week in this family. Just saying. So we can interpret it as our, our, our family, like our church family. We can interpret it as the big C church, like everybody that's Christian. Or my personal favorite is every single breathing body that is walking on the face of the planet is God's creation, God's gift to this earth. And he intimately loves every single breathing human on this planet. It's our obligation to meet needs. That's what our call is. (laughs) We have to do it. Because there are people who have become, become slaves to intimate needs, to immediate, deep needs. And so here's the thing. Preaching from far away doesn't work. We can't go, hey, homeless guy, hope you find a house. Jesus loves you. Here's your Bible. That's what some people do. Hey, I know you're hungry. Hadn't had a meal in a few days. I know, orphan, you're alone and homeless. You've been beaten. You've been abused. Hope you find Jesus. He'll love you. Preaching from far away doesn't work. The only way that you can really see needs is by getting deep, deeply involved with people. Just in being involved in downtown High Point, like, I found so many needs <laughs> that I had no clue existed. Like, I did not know they existed until I actually started going and hanging out with people and just talking. And then all of a sudden you realize, like, this dude has some crazy PTSD, like, trauma. This girl, like, like she has been abused and battered. This person hadn't eaten in two days, hadn't had a drink of water in, like, a full day. That's a legit issue that we have an obligation to meet. So that's one. Next, in verse 3, it says, There are also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Um, Just a total side note, but I just found this interesting. Um, They were doing kingdom work, rebuilding the wall, and there's a famine. You know what that tells me? When you do God's work, it's not always rosy. It's not always nice. Sometimes you're doing work in the middle of a famine. Sometimes you are in the middle of the heat of the battle and the crap is flying and the junk is on you and the week gets heavy and you're doing God's work. (laughs) That's why we need the community. 
The guy that we've been spending time with, our staff, by the name of Mike Foster, has this statement. It says, how long can you hold the heavy? How long? How long can you survive the famine? You've got to have a community of people around you. So these people were mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, their houses because, they, because of this famine. Think, get this. So these people were a little bit better off because they had land and they had a house and they had like some of their basic needs met, right? So they were taking those things, the land that would produce food for them and the house that provided shelter for them, and the immediate need was we need food. So they were willing to say, I'll mortgage that. I will give that so that you give me either food or finances so that I can go get food right now. They were willing to turn in the keys to their home and the the land that would provide food for them in the long term because they were dying right then. That's called desperate times, call for desperate measures, right? This is intense. Like, Like they had become slaves to their stuff. Their stuff. They were enslaved by their home and by their lands and by their stuff because they were indebted. They said, I'll give that now. I'm, I'm owed. I owe that so that I can get some stuff back. I can get immediate need, food, met. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. And then lastly, there's this other group. In verse 4, it says, There were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. These people had become slaves to money. They were enslaved to money so that they could pay the king's tax. See, uh, Persia was the ruling power of this day, all right? And basically what would happen whenever a a ruling country would take over another country, one of the ways that they kind of kept that country in check was by putting taxes on them. You tax people heavy enough, then they can't actually get above. It's kind of like the glass ceiling, right? You just, you just keep putting enough money down their throat where, where they're having to give and give and give, and they can survive, but, but just barely. And so, so Persia was weighing taxes down on the people of Israel. Now, there was a handful of select Jews. They were the nobility, the ones that had, had the money, and they had kind of sided themselves with Persia. They had kind of snuggled up a little bit with Persia, with the Persian way of life. And so they had money and land and things and all this stuff. And so what they said is, hey, guys, do you need to borrow some money? I'll give you some money. Here you go. I'm going to charge you 50% interest. I'm going to charge you 60% interest. I'm going to charge you through the nose so that you can get your taxes paid. They had essentially become loan sharks, the Jewish mafia. If, if you want to call it that. So you have people who are slaves to an immediate need. You have people who are slaves to their stuff and people who are slaves to money to keep their stuff. And then lastly, in verse 5, it says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, meaning we're just like the other rich Jews. We're just like them. Our children are as their children. We have the same kids. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Meaning, like times were so tough that the family had to say, Hey honey, hey daughter, this rich guy's son wants to marry you and I know you don't want to marry him and I don't really want to give you over to marriage, but if you go with him, you'll be taken care of and you'll get food and you'll get shelter 
And so I guess the only choice we have is, here you go, daughter. And then they'd get a little bit of money in return. They'd get a little bit of, you know, cows or whatever, grain, so that they could live. So not only had they been been enslaved to their immediate needs and their things and their money and all this stuff, they had actually become enslaved themselves. They had enslaved their children. They were giving away members of their family. Why? Because they had no option. They didn't have choice. And all this is happening while they're doing a great work. While they're rebuilding the kingdom of God. Can I be honest with you? Not that I haven't been honest this entire time. I might have thrown a lie or two in there. I'm just kidding. When I read this, when I read that passage in Leviticus, I got really upset. Because I realized that me and a lot of people I know are enslaved. We've got our immediate needs met. But some of us are in debt up to our eyeballs. Some of us are living paycheck to paycheck, making the house payment and the car payment and the dog payment and the school payment and the clothes payment and the credit card payment and the whatever payment. For what? So we can keep up. So we can have some, some something, I don't know, some kind of image to, to, to live by. And I read this scripture and I told my wife, I said, ma'am, we got to create margin. Like we need margin in our lives. And I mean, we're, we're like, as far as debt and stuff's concerned, like, like literally we don't have much. I mean, we're, 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 our cars are paid for. We don't have a house payment. Like we're, we're doing good. But still, every month, we're bumping up to the, to the end of the paycheck. Every month. And when I read that passage about when you see a brother who's poor and can't help themselves, you have a moral obligation to help them out. And two stinking people in this church body are facing homelessness right now that I know of. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure there's more people dealing with trauma. I'm sure there's more people that are hungry. And we, 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 helps, we help them out. We got them a place to stay in a, in a, a week hotel thing, extended stay deal. It made me so mad that I had to take that out of the church budget because I don't have enough margin in my life 
to help them. I sat down with my wife and I said, we got to fix this. Not because we're bound by some legalistic, like God's going to be more happy with me if I give stuff or, 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 or whatever. But because we, just like Israel getting caught up in the Persian way, We've got caught up in the American dream. Who cares what you drive? Who cares what clothes you wear? Who gives a flying flip about what your house looks like? What matters is your heart. The fact that you're saying, I'm doing everything I can to, to glorify God, just to give Him honor. We've got to create margin. One of the most beautiful pictures that I saw out of this week was last night in the, uh, the campus or expression or whatever you want to call it that we do in downtown High Point. We're hanging out. There's about a hundred some people there and, and we were serving pizza. Serving pizza, hanging out, talking about Jesus, hugging, having a good time. And one of the volunteers came over and said, hey, I, I just need you to see this for a minute. And I looked over at the serving line. And the ones serving the food were all downtown people. People who cannot buy their own box of pizza have an opportunity to build the kingdom by putting pizza on a stinking plate and handing it to somebody else saying, God loves you. Taking a scoop of ice cream and putting it on a plate saying, God loves you. And that's what it's about. They can't do it because they're stuck. And yeah, you can, you can get all into, man, it's their fault. They've done this. They've done that. Whatever. It's time to quit pointing fingers. Look at your own self. I had to take a hard look. Because I realized if every single person in this church said, I'm going to create margin in my life so that when God says, hey, I need you to help that person, you absolutely go, yep, I'm in the game. There's an immediate need. Yep, I'm going to meet it. I'm in. I'll do it, God. Whatever. I'm there. If every single one of us did that, not just this church would change. This entire community would change. If every church started taking this to heart, we wouldn't have to need welfare. We wouldn't need the government's assistance. They had to step in because we're not doing our job. And like I said, it's not about legalism. Because here's the catch. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees try to trick Jesus. They say, hey Jesus, we got a good one for you. What's the greatest commandment? They think they're going to get him. You know what he says? Love God 
all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second's great is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like we overcomplexify this entire thing. It's so easy. Love God, like, like intimately, passionately. And the more you fall in love with God, the byproduct is you love others. Your heart is turned to the immediate needs of the people in the community. You go to places that you've never gone and you do things that people go, that's weird, why are you doing that? Why are you selling your house to downsize? Why are you not buying the stuff that you used to buy? Why is your car looking junky? Because you sold it and you got something else. It's because I want to create margin. Nothing else. Now, like I said, this is not a legalism message. I'm not telling you to go give all your money away and, and live like Mother Teresa. I'm just saying whatever God asks you to do, do it. Because he's going to ask you. If you take a look at yourself, he's going to ask you. I'm telling you. Like, like, like the picture that I have is this like lower road. And it's rough and it's craggy and it's hard to walk. And God's saying, hey, I need you to go down there. Not by yourself. I'm going to go with you. I need you to go down there. I need you to, to learn how to relive this life. You bought into the American dream. And it's not what I intended for you. I've got something so much more special and more amazing. But I, <laughs> this totally, well, not off the subject, but just a side note. I thought, man, at the end of the week, at the extended stay, we got more homeless people. What are we going to do? And I was like, man, what, what if I could figure out how to create margin enough to get a rent house and, and let somebody live there and say, hey, next six months, on me. Cheers. Keep the grass mowed, you know, keep the house picked up a little bit. And in fact, I'm going to give you a little bit of my paycheck so that you can just come to work with me and hang out. We'll just be disciples. <laughs> We'll just get into stuff. Like, like, we'll go hang out and be with people and just start praying like crazy that God just just enables you to find a place to stay and a job. And, 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 and man, I just, walk, I just want to walk with you. What if we all did that? We have to have an intense commitment because the problem is the people of Israel forgot why the wall was being built. They forgot they thought that once the wall got up, that their protection was there and they could just keep on building their kingdom. They lost their way. They were living the Persian dream just like we lived the American dream. And it was up to somebody like Nehemiah to say, Stop. Stop levying taxes on your people. Stop living off the backs of others. Utilize what you have for the glory of God. I know you're not taxing anybody. I know you're not living off the backs of people. Man, we live in a world full of excess. I got more shirts than I can count. I don't need that. We don't. Don't lose sight of the purpose of the wall. The wall represents God's kingdom being built. The wall represents the restoration of God's community, not the protection to create our own kingdom.
Nehemiah never lost sight of the wall. He never lost sight of the kingdom that was being created, that was being built up, that he got to be a part of. So I just want to call you you back. (laughs) Don't lose sight of the wall. Don't lose sight of the kingdom. Don't lose sight that God has something way more special and more amazing for you. Don't be enslaved to anything anymore. Like Jesus came and set you free. That's what he came for. If you're a follower of Jesus, every single one of you is absolutely, totally free. And guess what? If you live as a slave in debt for the rest of your life, you're still going to heaven if you're a follower of Jesus. That's grace. That's the beauty of grace. But what God's calling us to is to live expressions of love so that other people can see the kingdom. That's why we do this. It's not motivated because we think God's going to like us better or or we're going to get another gold star on the the Sunday school board. (laughs) We do it because we just are madly in love with God and the byproducts we love others. So as as we sing this song, I just want you to think on this. You can stand with me. Just think like, Is there anything that has your heart more than God? Because if so, then, then, then you, you got a chain on you. You're stuck. Does anything capture your heart more than God? And if that's so, this is your place. This is your time. You can come up here and just say, I don't want to be a slave anymore. I don't have to be. If that's you, as we sing the words of this song, let it sink in, chew on it, process on it, do whatever you got to do. We got people that will come and pray for you. Father, I pray in this time that just, just whatever, whatever needs to happen just happens. Let us just embrace fully what you're calling us to do, God. Let us step boldly into your throne room in this moment. We love you, God, in your name.